Hi, I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career as a writer. Now, my listeners may be familiar with the Naked Gun movies, the comedy uh, cop movie spoofs that were made back in the 90s, I think, by Wisconsin powerhouses Zucker Abrams Zucker, creators of the brilliant movie Airplane. Well, if you're familiar with the Naked Gun police spoof starring Leslie Nielsen as the bumbling Inspector Frank Drebin, you may not be aware that that title, The Naked Gun, is actually a spoof title. It's taken from a 1948 movie called The Naked City. And I have a lot to say about The Naked City coming up, but I just wanted to give you that little background so you know a little bit about it before we go in. Now, in a recent episode, I kind of badmouthed my original film school experience at the University of Milwaukee, and I stand by that. But there's more to the story than that. After I decided to drop out of college because I was so disappointed in that film program, I did what most guys at 20 years old uh, between gigs would do. I got a factory job earning as much money as I possibly could. I was actually uh, inspecting glass bottles uh, at a glass bottle plant. So if you, if you never found any uh, flaws or floating glass in your bottle of Miller High Life, you can thank me for that because I was the guy who spotted the defect. So I earned pretty good money, and I decided I was going to save up all this money as much as I possibly could so that I could enroll in the ultimate film school, USC, the University of Southern California, which had just sprouted George Lucas. It was a pretty ambitious goal, but I felt I could pull it off. And things were going very well. Uh, I was earning a lot of money. I was saving a lot because I was working third shift, so I never saw any of my friends, so I never spent money on shit. But right in the middle of this, something very amazing happened. I entered a raffle that was sponsored by my uh, former high school, and I won the raffle. The first prize was a new car, which sounds awfully exciting, and it was until I got a look at the car I won. It was a brand spanking new 1980 Pontiac Grand Prix. Now, a Grand Prix isn't necessarily a bad car. In fact, there have been some pretty excellent Grand Prix over the years. But this particular model, super boring. It was bottom of the line, smallest engine, no options. It was baby blue with a matching baby blue interior. It was just boring. No 20-year-old guy trying to make his way in the world wants to show up in a low-powered, baby blue, bottom of the line Pontiac Grand Prix. So I had a little problem. Here's how I worked it out. It turns out the dealer that donated the Grand Prix to my high school also sold MG sports cars. And they just so happened to have an MG midget in stock that was basically the same price as the Grand Prix. So we worked out a swap. They would keep the Grand Prix, but I would get the MG midget as my contest prize. Couldn't have worked out better for me. I love this car. A tiny little British racing green, two-seat convertible. I felt like I was king of the world driving that car. Even though I was still working third shift at a cruddy factory, I was showing up in an MG Midget, man. What could be better? I loved it. So we get to the following December. I quit my job at the glass bottle factory. And right after the holidays, I pack up my MG Midget and I head to L.A. Because, surprise, in the meantime, I've been accepted at the University of California. I've made it. I've hit the big time. 
So I have a wonderful trip out west by myself in my beautiful little sports car with the top down as often as possible. And I arrive in L.A. and I was a few days, uh, a few days premature. I couldn't move into the dorm yet. But my brother Dave had some friends living in L.A. and they offered to put me up. They had a very surfable couch and they made it available to me. So I couch surfed at their place for a night or two. But before getting those arrangements all ironed out, I still had to find a place to stay for a day or two. And I ended up at this kind of -of run-of-the-mill hotel in a city called Rosemead out in the L.A. suburbs. Um, And I get up in the morning after spending my night at the hotel, and I'm all all revving to go, man. My first full day in L.A., I can't wait. I can't wait to start tooling around, seeing what there is to see, getting acquainted with my new city. And I walk out to the parking lot of the hotel, and I kind of stop and do a double-take. And something was wrong. My car wasn't there where I thought I had parked it the night before. So I'm thinking, uh, well, maybe, maybe I parked it over on that other side of the building. So I walked to the other side of the building. Uh, no, no MG Midget there. Uh, walk all around the hotel. Nope, not there, not there. Holy shit, somebody stole my car. Somebody stole my MG Midget from right under my nose while I was sleeping 20 feet away in this stupid hotel. Holy shit. Not only did they steal the car, they stole all my movies. All those movies that I made in my, in my early days of my amateur film career, they were all part packed in the car. I didn't feel like lugging them into the hotel room, so they were all in the car. So these car thieves got everything, basically everything that was me <laughs> disappeared that night. First thing I did was call my parents uh, back in Wisconsin, and all I remember is my mom answered the phone, and I just burst into tears the minute I heard her voice. My car got stolen! And, you know, of course, my parents are like, well, what can we do to help? Well, there really wasn't anything they could do to help. I, I sure as hell didn't want to turn tail and head back to Wisconsin. I just couldn't deal with that. So I just said, look, you know, I'll try to figure things out here. I'll contact my brother's friends. You know, maybe they can have me show up a day early or something. So we got that all worked out, and I spent that day with, I mean, all basically all I had left was like a backpack with a couple of changes of clothes. And I ended up spending that day, and it took me all day to ride the L.A. buses to get from Rosemead up to the San Fernando Valley where Dave's friends lived. They turned out to be wonderful hosts. Their sofa was indeed very surfable. I spent a day or two with them. Uh, one, one really great memory I have is that one, one of the, that group of roommates uh, was a photographer and set out for a hot air balloon festival to take some photos. And I was lucky enough to hitch a ride along with that. And I got my first and only ride in a hot air balloon. And that was quite wonderful because it wasn't just, wasn't just us in one hot air balloon. It was like 20 or 30 hot air balloons all over the place. Everywhere you looked in the sky, there were hot air balloons Just beautiful, really fun experience. So, I'm kind of getting back on my feet. I've had a day or two to recover from the car being stolen. I know the police are on the case. And I show up to USC for registration. I've already got everything paid for. I've got my dorm reserved. Everything's all set up. And I show up at admissions. And they're like, yes, Mr. O'Connell, how can we help you? And I said, yeah, hi, I've been accepted in the film school. And I'm here to start. Now, you got to remember, this is, this is January now, so I, I'm, I'm there for the second semester. So the, the admissions person looks through her records and she says, no, I'm, I'm sorry, you're not, 
you're not actually accepted in the film school. I was like, you're kidding me. You've been sending me letters for the last three months telling me that I've been accepted. And this woman looks at me like I'm crazy. She's like, no, our, our waiting list for the film school is a mile long. I'm sorry, but you're not accepted in the film school. Well, I felt really pissed off and really ripped off. I was not in the mood for more bullshit at that point. But I had to give it some serious thought, and I decided, well, I'm here now. Everything's paid for. I've got a dorm room to stay in for the next five months. And what the hell? Let's just enroll for as many film classes as I can and see what happens. And maybe it'll be worth waiting around to try to move up the list. So I enrolled. I took as many film classes as I could, and and they were great. I mean, I took an animation class. uh, I took a horror movie class. Really, really fun stuff. But the important point here is that I enrolled for my very first screenwriting class. Up until this point, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit, but up until this point, I had sort of considered movie making as just this one monolithic thing. Like, well, I want to make movies. And I never went beyond that into, well, what part of the team do you want to be? What role do you want to play? I never thought of it that way. I just thought of it as, I want to make movies. <laughs> what, what do I need to explain about that? Well, I sign up for this screenwriting class, and lo and behold, I start to realize that, oh, this is a collaborative process. There are different jobs you can do within the movie-making milieu, and screenwriting is one of them. You are the chief storyteller, basically, or the original storyteller, and I kind of warmed up to that idea. So I go to my first screenwriting class, and the teacher enters the class And I thought I might be in the wrong class. I wasn't really sure because I don't know what I imagined a scriptwriter would look like. But this guy was this sort of not quite quite elderly, but a little beyond middle age-ish kind of very rumpled, kind of absent-minded professor look to him. I just remember him always wearing this same... Heather Gray, like J.C. Penny off the rack suit, and really floppy, beat up old sneakers <laughs> that were untied half the time. And I, he just struck me as kind of comical. And here's the thing I don't remember much of anything from that class. I don't remember him teaching us anything about character development or story structure. None of, the, none of the nuts and bolts of writing a screenplay. I don't even remember what I wrote for that class. I know I must have written something, and maybe someday I will find it in my files. And if I do, I will bring it to your attention. But at, at this point, I just don't remember what we did in that class. What I do remember is this instructor, his name was Malvin Wald. That's Malvin, M-A-L-V-I-N. Malvin Wald had been working as a screenwriter for many, many years. And he had started out in the studio system. That was a a time when a screenwriter like Mr. Wald would be employed by one studio and he would be assigned scripts to write by the department head. So Melvin Wald may not have been the greatest teacher, or so it seemed at the time, but he had a lot of great stories to tell about working in the studio system. I wish I could say I remembered any of them. Unfortunately, I don't. But I do remember being wildly entertained 
by this guy's stories of the reality of the film business. I mean, this guy had seen it all. He had done it all. So here, here he is teaching me a screenwriting class. And like I said, it was kind of it was kind of a revelation to me that there was this specific element of filmmaking that seemed to really fit my sensibilities, and uh, I never turned back. So the one good thing I did get from that course at the time was this realization of this very specific role I wanted to play in film and TV production, and that was that was really a, a big big deal. Now I'll have more USC stories to tell in in other episodes because I actually did have some of the, some of the most bizarre, ridiculous, and hilarious episodes of my life took place in that short span that I was going to USC. But here's the thing about Melvin Wald. So, like I said, rumpled suit, floppy, untied sneakers. He had this he had this way of giving these little soft coughs. <laughs> Every now and then when he was speaking, I didn't, never knew if it was because he was a smoker or what, but, but there was a lot of <coughs> punctuating his talk. You'll hear a little bit about that later. Now, it was pretty clear uh, from this class that there was one particular movie Melvin had worked on that he was very proud of, and it was called The Naked City. That's how I tie it back to my intro with The Naked Gun. The Naked City. Melvin was very proud of this movie because it was the original police procedural. Uh, it was the first movie script based on actual case files of the New York City Police Department, or based on case files of any police department for that matter. He just happened to do New York because that's where he had grown up. So The Naked City, really, he was really proud of the movie. He had been nominated for an Oscar for Best Story for The Naked City, which says a lot. But for some reason, I never really got curious about that movie just because I let my, uh, I think I let my perception of Malcolm as being, Melvin as being this sort of absent-minded goof, the floppy tennis shoes, and I just never really thought that watching any of his movies <laughs> would, would be worthwhile. I hate to say that now because it sounds so awful, but that's really how, how I felt. I did catch one of his movies because I was super intrigued about it. He wrote in the, uh, I think it's in the 70s, he wrote this uh, softcore porn uh, murder mystery called Venus in Furs for this genre director, Jesus Franco. And I was on a Jesus Franco kick at the time and decided to watch, oh my God, here's a movie, a, a Jesus Franco movie written by my old screenwriting professor. Holy shit. And so I've seen uh, Venus in Furs. Here's the IMDb write-up of the movie. And I quote, After a musician finds the corpse of a beautiful woman on the beach, the woman returns from the dead to take revenge on those responsible for her death. Well, that sounds like a pretty great movie, doesn't it? Well, it's not really. It has its moments, and like I said, there is some, uh, there is some softcore sex. Uh, but the movie doesn't have much else to recommend it. Melvin also did some other interesting things late in his career. He wrote things like In Search of Historic Jesus. And this one really surprised me and kind of amused me. He wrote the original movie, The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams, which... I don't even know how to describe it. There was a trend in the 70s and 80s to do these nature hero uh, movies. And Grizzly Adams was this character, this like backwoodsman. Uh, and it actually was turned into a pretty successful TV series for a while, The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams. 
starring TV's Dan Haggerty. Anyway, so those were kinds of some of the things I looked into in Melvin Wald's career. And they kind of confirmed my suspicions that maybe, maybe he was, you know, kind of an unreliable screenwriting teacher, I guess a nice way to say it. But I'm happy to say that I have been proven wrong because what I did just now today was I finally watched The Naked City. After all these years, I finally watched the movie that my script writing professor was so proud of. And I'm really glad I did because, man, this movie is fucking brilliant. I'm I'm just amazed at how beautifully done it is. I I just imagined, I guess, that it would be this kind of deadpan, dry, boring, two-dimensional movie. And man, I was just wrong on every count. It's just fucking brilliant. It's brilliantly directed by this guy, Jules Dassin, and I'm wondering why I've never watched any of his movies before. The cinematography is amazing. The acting is amazing. And yeah, the writing is amazing. Lots and lots of characters in this movie coming and going, and each character no matter how small, seems to get his or her own really wonderful moment in the script. And man, the actors deliver. They just, they deliver so much with just the way they deliver one of Melvin's lines of dialogue or the facial expressions they have and reaction shots. They're just, they're all just fucking brilliant. I'm kicking myself for not having watched this movie before. And and you watch it and you think, oh my God, that's where that came from. That's where that came from. This movie pioneered so much. Uh, But don't take it from me. I'm going to play a clip now. The movie opens with a montage of flyover scenes from an airplane flying over New York City. And the producer of the movie breaks in with a voiceover, and he keeps talking. I think this is pretty unique. I've never heard of a, a film's producer introducing it in voiceover and sort of setting the stage for the movie that's to come. But I'm going to play that for you now. This is producer Mark Hellinger introducing... The Naked City. Ladies and gentlemen, the motion picture you are about to see is called The Naked City. My name is Mark Hellinger. I was in charge of its production. And I may as well tell you frankly that it's a bit different from most films you've ever seen. It was written by Albert Maltz and Malvin Wall, photographed by William Daniels, and directed by Jules Dastin. As you see, we're flying over an island, a city, a particular city. And this is a story of a number of people, and a story also of the city itself. It was not photographed in a studio. Quite the contrary. Barry Fitzgerald, our star, Howard Duff, Dorothy Hart, Don Taylor, Ted DeCorsia, and the other actors played out their roles on the streets, in the apartment houses, in the skyscrapers of New York itself. And along with them, a great many thousand New Yorkers played out their roles also. This is the city as it is. Hot summer pavements, the children at play, the buildings in their naked stone, the people without makeup. Well, let's begin our story this way. It's one o'clock in the morning on a hot summer night. And this is the face of New York when it's asleep or as nearly asleep as any city ever is. And at the very next moment, we are witness to a brutal murder. 
the tone shifts so quickly. And here's the really cool thing about that transition. Up until this moment, we've just been seeing these exterior shots of New York City taken as a whole. As soon as we start seeing the murder taking place, the camera is directly outside an apartment window looking into the murder scene through uh, closed blinds. It's a really dramatic shift and it's, it, works, it works beautifully. And it's just one of the many unbelievable gear changes that this movie pulls without you even really noticing it. You just get pulled into it so beautifully. A couple things I loved, especially, the movie's funny. It's a, it, I mean, this is a straight drama, and yet so many of the characters have these really funny moments, either a funny moment of dialogue or a funny little interaction, and it makes all the characters just really real to me. That's always been one of my litmus tests for a character. If a dramatic character can have a moment of humor, that just makes them so much more human, and, and that's what you get in this movie. I Listen, I've had abdominal surgery in the past two weeks. It really hurts when I laugh. And I was laughing my head off like a half a dozen times throughout this movie. The scenes are so clever. Another thing, another highlight, about halfway through the movie, there's this wonderful sequence where the family, the parents of the murder victim, show up at the morgue to identify their daughter's body. And this scene could have been just a throwaway. It could have been handled really quickly and efficiently. But instead, uh, their director, Jules Desen, just lingers on this scene for a very long time, gives every character their moment, doesn't rush anything, and then the whole sequence ends with this absolutely gorgeous shot of the cops and the parents uh, sitting out on this pier. We don't really know how they got there, but they're sitting out on this pier just talking about life and death as the sun sets behind them over Manhattan Island. It's just an incredible shot, one of the most beautiful movie scenes I've ever seen. Can't say enough about it. Well, lo and behold, after I watched the movie this morning, I discovered that there's also, on the Criterion channel, there's another version of the movie with a commentary track by my man, Malvin Wald. So without wasting any more breath, I'm going to play Malvin's section. Now, you'll notice the audio quality uh, on these segments isn't the greatest. I'm, I'm still learning uh, how to do this right. And I just recorded this off the TV. So apologies for uh, the audio quality not being absolute tops. Also, you will hear the actual soundtrack of the movie in the distant background underneath Melvin's comments. But I really wanted you to hear what Melvin had to say about this movie. So here goes. My name is Melvin Wald. As Mark Hellander, the producer of The Naked City, says on the opening narration... I was one of the two writers. As a matter of fact, I was the first writer. I conceived the entire creation of this film. I spent six months on it, and it was a revolutionary film for its time. My name is Mark Hellander. You might say it was it caused the same effect that Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction did in the 90s. But there in the late 40s, it was truly a worldwide sensation that the British Film Academy nominated it as the best film along with Olivier's Hamlet, Fallen Idol, and Paisan. The French critics refer to this as having created something called the police documentary. And in America, the film resulted in the members of the Academy looking at three elements of the film. The gave me a nomination for best story because of their 
concerned with the story structure, very similar to the revolutionary things which Quentin Tarantino did in Pulp Fiction. Then they gave not only a nomination, but the award for the cinematography by William Daniels, who heretofore had been famous as Greta Garbo's photographer, and by the technically brilliant cutting of Paul Weatherwax, which you'll see in the, especially in the last sequence of the film, A Chase on a Bridge. Now, what's interesting about this film is that it did two new things. It took the documentary technique, which had been used before in uh, other films by Louis de Rochemont, like The House on 92nd Street, but it applied it to an entire city here. Here, uh, there was 107 different places where the film was shot. <laughs> but even more so, today that the film may look dated, and the reason why it looks dated has been imitated so often, it took a new approach, a brand new approach, to murder stories. Heretofore, uh, going back to the days of Sherlock Holmes, the crimes were solved by private individuals such as Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, or later on in the classic Sam Spade series, uh, starting with uh, Maltese Falcon. But what Naked City did was for the first time, say the police and its laboratories and its, its, uh, uh, and its autopsy reports is the way you solve crime. The uh, police in the private eye films, uh, the Nick and Ray Charles films or the, uh, the Sam Spade films, the police were always kind of uh, backwards or stupid and it was the private eye who solved the crime. Well, for the first time, at least on a large scale, uh, two things were happening. A major studio was going outside the studio walls, so no longer did you see the painted sets, but was going to the real locations of a huge city. And secondly, the police were going to be shown in a new light. Uh, uh, you can look at NYPD Blue today, and look at the two leading characters, Sipkowitz, the older, wiser detective, and uh, the younger detective. This technique of the, the police buddy film started with The Naked City. It was subsequently copied on radio by Dragnet. And then as a matter of fact, Naked City became one of the preeminent crime series on television and was followed by a series like Miami Vice, which was called Naked City and Pastel Shades, and even our agenda change with Cagney and Lacey. The point that I made as a result of my research was that crimes are solved by hard work, by many people, not by a brilliant Sherlock Holmes sitting around deducing. And he's right. Crimes aren't solved by Sherlock Holmes sitting around and deducing things. Crimes are solved by hard work, by real people. And that's what's so great about this movie. 
they depict the hard work. They depict the reality of these people. They, they have lives that they're living in. They're not just characters on screen. Another treat for me, I don't know if other people are like this, but I love spotting familiar actors in unfamiliar roles. This movie made in the late 1940s features a whole bunch of uh, recognizable character actors that I've seen in millions and millions of shows, TV shows and movies. Arthur O'Connell, James Gregory, John Randolph, David Opatoshu, just incredible, an incredible roster of actors who went on to bigger, bigger and better things. Uh, the actor who plays the sidekick in this movie went on to have an incredible career as a movie and TV director. I love that sort of stuff. That's what makes IMDb so much fun for me. So I guess at this point, I just want to say, Melvin, my apologies. I took a screenwriting class with a guy who invented a genre. He invented a genre. And I spent five months in his class and I didn't learn shit. <laughs> and I feel really bad about it because Melvin Wald was a genius. I'll, I got to hand it to him. The guy was incredible. Now, to wind up my tribute to Melvin Wald, I'd like to read the obituary that ran in the New York Times when Melvin passed away. Now, to get an obituary published in the New York Times is kind of an amazing achievement, even though you had to die to make it happen. So here it is. Here is the obituary from the New York Times, dated March 11th, 2008. Melvin Wald, who conceived and was co-writer of the gritty 1948 crime film The Naked City, a prototype for modern police dramas, including the popular television show of the same name, died on Thursday in Sherman Oaks, California. He was 90 and lived in Sherman Oaks. His death was confirmed by his son, Alan. Ending with the famous lines, There are eight million stories in the Naked City. This has been one of them. The Naked City, which was written with Albert Maltz, was inspired by Mr. Wald's adolescent years on the streets of Brooklyn. No one had done a film where the real hero was a hard-working police detective like the ones I knew in Brooklyn, Mr. Wald told The Hollywood Reporter last year. We knew we were making a new genre that became the police procedural. Besides its television spin-off, which ran from 1958 to 1963, many other films and TV shows drew inspiration and tone from The Naked City, including Dragnet, Hill Street Blues, and CSI. Mr. Wald was nominated for the Academy Award for Screenwriting for The Naked City, which won two other Oscars for its cinematography and editing. It was one of more than 150 scripts by Mr. Wald. His other film credits for writing or story include Al Capone, 1959, Battle Taxi, 1955, about the first use of helicopters in war, and Ten Gentlemen from West Point, 1942, about the early years of the Military Academy. He wrote television scripts for, among other shows, Perry Mason, Peter Gunn, Have Gunn Will Travel, My Friend Flicka, Doc Tari, and Playhouse 90. Malvin Daniel Wald was born on August 8, 1917, a son of Rudy and Bella Danglo Wald. His wife Sylvia died in 1999. In addition to his son of Sherman Oaks, Mr. Wald is survived by a daughter, Jennifer Morgan, of Redondo Beach, California. His brother Jerry Wald, an Academy Award-winning producer, died in 1962. Mr. Wald graduated from Brooklyn College in 1936. By then, his brother Jerry had gone on to Hollywood as a screenwriter. Melvin Wald soon followed. The idea for The Naked City came to Mr. Wald from a photography book of the same name showing the bloody crime scene coverage of the famed tabloid photographer Arthur Fellig, known as Ouija. 
The film script follows Detective Dan Muldoon, played by Barry Fitzgerald, as he trails the killer of a woman found drowned in the bathtub of her Upper East Side apartment. The movie was shot on city streets, on East River piers, and finally on the Williamsburg Bridge, where the killer climbs a tower, is shot, and lands with a thud. My concept was that the police department, with all its fingerprint experts, crime scene photographers, and autopsy physicians, solved murders, not Sam Spade-type private eyes working alone, Mr. Wald later wrote. At one point in the script, Detective Muldoon says, Haven't had a hard day's work since yesterday. So there you have it, a fine obituary for a fine writer. Again, Melvin, my apologies for not paying closer attention. I could have learned so much from you, and I'm sorry I missed that opportunity. Until next time, this has been Farfetched. fetched